Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's Tuesday, January the 9th, and your Ben Jarofsky show starts now. On today's show, Ben talks the top stories with none other than the publicity expert herself, Delmarie Cobb. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, well, you need to head to ChicagoReader.com because you can find all that and a lot more. If you want more Ben Jarofsky, head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello, good everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this DB Guns Tuesday, and here's why. Well, Darren Bailey, you remember him, ladies and gentlemen, Darren Bailey? <laughs> I mean, you got to laugh at some level. Darren Bailey was the Republican candidate for governor against J.B. Pritzker in the year 2022. Good Lord. Delmarie Cobb is my guest today. We were talking about how time is just flying, flying, flying. I mean, it was already two years ago. Uh, Darren Bailey ran against um, J.B. Pritzker, and he was a hard right MAGA candidate. And uh, so the Republicans have been in Illinois, have been officially taken over by MAGA. We all know that. Uh, there, There is no moderate wing of the Republican Party in Illinois. They've pretty much driven out everybody who is, quote, unquote, moderate. And when I put moderate, I got it in quotes because even the moderates aren't that moderate for me. But Adam Kinzer, gone. Uh, Jim Durkin, gone. All right. Anybody who's a little, I mean, Jim Thompson, long forgotten. All right. So anyway, DB, uh, Dara Bailey, uh, lost, as we know, to J.B. Pritzker. He's hard right. MAGA man. He's now running for Congress against Mike Bost in the Republican primary. Now, Mike Bost is a conservative Trumpian <laughs> MAGA Republican. But Darren Bailey's trying to convince voters in a Republican primary that he, Darren Bailey, is the real deal. <laughs> so he's got out MAGA, a MAGA man. It's like a wrestling match. We're MAGA. They strip off their shirts and they're in the mud, MAGA mud. So thank you, listener Frank, for sending me this one. I mean, this one is a piece of work, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so Darren Bailey has this commercial he put out on the internet, and he really doesn't care if Democrats see it. Or he really doesn't care if independent voters see it because it's all about winning MAGA. It's all about convincing MAGA that he's more MAGA than Mike Bost, who made his start by being like MAGA before MAGA. He was the guy, who, if you remember, he was yelling about Michael Madigan and he threw his papers in the air. He's a state rep and he made, he made I think he made national news, definitely made a, uh, all of the state of Illinois news. And he rode that tirade to Congress. I was like, I stood up to Madigan, but yeah, of course he won't stand up to Trump. They only pick and choose the uh, uh, the bosses they stand up to. So anyway, DB has this uh, c- commercial that he's put out on the internet, and it has to do with uh, the law passed in Illinois, signed by J.B. Pritzker, Governor Pritzker, of forcing people in Illinois to register their assault rifles with the state. 
I now I personally don't see anything wrong with it. You got to register a lot of things with the state. You know, you got to drive a car. You got to register that with the state. So why shouldn't you have to register an assault rifle with the state? But apparently DB disagrees with me, and he thinks that's a uh, infringement of liberty, your sacred liberty. Uh, MAGA is really big about liberty when it comes to them. They don't care about anybody else's liberty. I've never seen a MAGA person stand up for anybody else but a MAGA person when it comes to liberty, okay? You know, Conning Gay, didn't, president of uh, Harvard, didn't have the liberty to speak her mind, right? She didn't have the liberty to make a mistake and get over it. No, gone. <laughs> You're gone. Liberty for me, not for thee. That's MAGA's belief. Anyway, this gun commercial's insane. So he comes down, he goes, he starts off. I'm doing this off the top of my head. You know, a lot of people ask me what I think about JB Pritzker's gun registry law. Well, I'll tell you. I mean, meanwhile, he's walking out of his house, which has a big, huge American flag flying. And he walks up and he just he's got this uh machine gun or his automatic rifle with him, and he just starts shooting it. <laughs> And there's a sign tight, tight, uh, nailed to a tree, and it says, do not comply. Well, and he shoots the sign. And that's it. The commercial him shooting. So it's like he's saying, I don't like this law. This is what I do. I just start shooting. This is where MAGA is right now. He shoots the sign. By the way, I'm just saying this. Now, they lead you to believe that he's shooting bullseyes. Even though, just saying, DB, there's not a shot of you from behind, shot as in camera shot, of you behind showing that you are shooting the bullseye. They show you shooting, and then they show the bullseye getting penetrated with bullets. I'm like, well, how do I know you're the one who shot that? I'm just saying, DB, you want to be the big guy shooting the gun and your dead-eye bullseye? Nah, I don't know. It's a little trickery to me. At least Kid Rock, speaking of insane MAGA people, Hit the Bud Light bottles. Remember that one later? Another MAGA lunatic. He didn't like Bud Light because Bud Light did some kind of commercial uh, with a trans person. Remember that one? So he goes, I'm going to shoot up my Bud Light. MAGA, man, you guys have to laugh at them. They're utter insane. Except we also live in an environment where (laughs) MAGA's leader, Donald Trump, uh, is promising to raise holy hell uh, against anybody who stands in his way. So it's kind of scary, this moment we're at. You know, and I'm not sure the country shares my opinions. I've talked to a lot of people who don't share my opinions on this one, who aren't particularly scared by where we're at in this country right now. Uh, But I don't know. The notion that a political disagreement could be somehow or other settled with weaponry. It's not a good look, I would like to say. I'm going to see euphemistically. Not a good look for America. Certainly doesn't reassure me about the mental competence of Darren Bailey, who, one more time, was the Republican candidate for governor just a year or so ago. All right, uh, Delmarie Cobb, uh, Mm -hmm. welcome back to my humble little podcast. You patiently listened to my rant and rave there. Any thoughts about Darren Bailey? Uh, shooting up uh, the will not do not comply sign or the do comply sign in uh, response to J.B. Pritzker. It's exactly what you said, Ben. Um, MAGA people are just off the charts. I mean, it's just unbelievable that this is acceptable. I mean, 
you know, it's not only that they're doing commercials, they're doing Christmas cards, they're doing everything, showing their whole family together with holding guns, even the children holding guns. I mean, this is this is pervasive throughout the Republican Party and those people who are following Donald Trump and are saying that, you know, this is their right, as you said, this is my freedom. And, um, but, you know, nobody else has that same kind of freedom um, except them. And they're the only ones who are being victimized. If you listened to them tell it, every time somebody says something about guns, uh, they're being victimized or, or pointed out. And it doesn't matter how many kids are killed. Uh, they are determined um, that they're certainly not going to give up their guns. And at this point, I don't think anything's going to change. And I've been saying that forever because anytime little white kids are killed in Sandy Hook and nothing was done, then you know nothing is going to be done. Yeah, I um, I don't want to be pessimistic on this front because uh, I do want to promote a certain sense of hopefulness. Uh, but uh, on this particular subject, it's hard to see have any hope that anything can be done uh, to your point about Sandy Hook. That which occurred, oh, speaking of time flying, about 11 years ago, I want to say. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Alex Jones, is the, the, the man who stood. They, this is how extreme they were. Alex Jones made a campaign about how it was made up. Exactly. And, and they were uh, and they were going around, uh, you know, following those people. And, you know, here's some people who have already gone through the worst thing imaginable, losing a child or having witnessed it, any of that. And they're going around harassing them, telling them that it's all a fantasy. Mm-hmm. It never happened. So you didn't lose your child. This is all made up. All right. So. I'm going to switch gears a little bit uh, and get get your mind thought on a, uh, something that just occurred to me. And uh, producer Chris played for me a little sliver of Cat Williams. Uh, Cat Williams, for folks who don't follow these things, is uh, a comedian. And uh, I pretty funny, in my opinion, sometimes. Sometimes, you know, he goes, where are you going with that, Cat Williams? But he's a pretty funny guy, in my opinion. And he was on the Shannon Sharp podcast. Shannon Sharp is a former football player, has his own podcast, and does a lot of sports commentary, cultural commentary, etc. All right, a little background for folks who may not know who Cat Williams is and Shannon Sharp. And uh, they got to talk about politics, and Cat Williams opined uh, that this election is like going back to your ex or going back to your ex before your ex. Uh, and I had to think about that. And then, oh, yeah, I get what he said. His, your ex is Joe Biden. And I guess your ex before your ex is Donald Trump because he was president before Donald Trump. So essentially, he's saying it's just a bad choice. So your thoughts about boiling down the likely election, unless the Supremes bounce Donald Trump off the ballot. We'll get to that in a little bit. But the election will probably come down between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Your thoughts on this prevailing attitude that this is not a choice, a healthy choice for America. It's just more old, tired things to choose from. Well, you you can go by a couple of things. First of all, Maya Angelou said, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. 
the second thing is I've seen this movie before. I know how it's going to end. The third thing is, as my mom used to say, whatever drove you away the first time when you were with that person, there may be a honeymoon when you go back, but the same thing's going to rear its ugly head and drive you away again. And so we know who this person is. Why would we subject the country to electing Donald Trump to be the next president of the United States? I remember after his after the uh, second impeachment, and I'm not on Twitter or X, uh, but I look at it whenever I see something that makes the news. And I just remember after the second impeachment, Donald Trump sent out a tweet and it was a picture of him. And all it said was 2020, 2024, 2028, 2032. That's all it said. And the moment I saw it, I said, oh my God, he's not planning to leave if he loses. I mean, he was telling us, he was telegraphing it. And lo and behold, I mean, surely I had never seen that before, but I mean, the guy is telling me what he's getting ready to do because we know he can't be elected until 2032. So he must be planning not to leave. And that's exactly what happened. So when he says, I'm only going to be a dictator on day one, turn that around to, I'm going to be a dictator from day one, (laughs) because that's what he's saying to you is that, Everything we think we know about Donald Trump, he's going to do if he gets back in that in in that White House. Do you think this country wants a dictator? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, even those people who are following him who think they might want a dictator, if they have a dictator, they'll realize they don't want one. Um, I mean, I think right now they're just blinded by whatever it is about him. I don't know, you know, whether they think it's charisma or he's a strong man or he's, a, I don't know, or he's rich or, or he, you know, doesn't care. Uh, he says what he wants to say, but you know, even that is a sham. Uh, I wrote a column about this. Uh, I think the last election between him and, and Biden, that if you really look at what he's done, he's never done anything. What he's done is direct other people to do his dirty work. Mm -hmm. He's never done anything, but other people have. Other people have put their lives on the line. Other people are in jail for the things that he's instigated. When he told during the campaign in 2016, hit them, I'll get you out of jail. He didn't say, I'll hit them. Will you get me out of jail? He (laughs) said, hit them, I'll get you out of jail. So he's nothing but a coward. And he's selling wolf tickets and he's got a group of people who are buying the wolf tickets right and left. And when you think of the people that he's had killed, that he's had killed, like the woman during the insurrection, Ashley Babbitt, who -hmm. was killed, like the woman in in South Carolina who was killed um, when they had the march. Um, I mean, when you look at, like the police officers, who were killed. I mean, this man is responsible for the murders of a host of people. And nobody seems to to even, that's not even registering with most people. Well, I, 
this is the part, the thing I, uh, I'm, I'm starting to realize. It has penetrated my skull. Um, you and I and so many of the people who come on my show, we share a revulsion uh, for uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, no doubt about that. Uh, in fact, I, I don't know anybody who will speak up for Donald Trump except for hardcore MAGA. <laughs> but I've come into the conclusion that there are many people in this country who euphemistically, at best, are turned off by President Biden. So I always think that the uh, if you're not motivated to j- vote for Joe Biden, the fear of Trump w- will motivate you to vote. But I'm starting to realize that maybe that's not the case. And when I hear like cat, almost like they're one and the same, like bad choices, it's just a different kind of badness. I realize the tone and the tenor of this country may not be in line where I'm at, to put it mildly. And I shouldn't be surprised about that because I'm usually outside of the tone and the tenor, definitely in the city of Chicago. So this is my question to you. You've been at this game a long time, Delmarie. Do you think Joe Biden is so flawed that he can't possibly win this election? No, not by any means. Uh, I don't think we can take anything for granted. I think that we are going to have to campaign just as hard in 2024 as we did in 2020, if not harder, because there are people, and I had a black man say to me, that, you know, uh, there's this growing sentiment that black men are going to sit this one out uh, because they don't feel like Joe Biden has done anything. And I'm thinking, what what are you talking about? Are you crazy? I said, you can't sit this out. If you sit it out, Trump will win. <laughs> it's that simple. Uh, this was a close race. I mean, it was 75 million versus 80 million. But it was a close race that came to down to, you know, thousands, only thousands of votes between states. How do you think you can sit this out when you've already seen the damage he's done? I mean, when we talk about the economy, the economy, the reason it had to come back is because the damage that Trump did during COVID by not recognizing that we had a pandemic. And so this man had to come in, Biden, and climb his way out, climb our way out of a hole that Donald Trump put us in. And everybody is trying to flip the script and make and, and trying to shed a, a, a wonderful light on Donald Trump's term in office. Donald Trump's term in office was horrible. Think of all the people who died under his watch, again, the people he's killed, when you start mounting the people he's killed, who didn't believe there was a pandemic, refused to wear masks, refused to give vaccinations, and died. And these were his followers. The statistics show the majority of them were his supporters. The majority of them were white who died. So what is the problem that we would sit back here and think that we have the luxury of not voting as if that's going to make a statement to to the Democrats. And that's what this person said. Well, we've got to make a statement to the Democrats. No, how you make a statement to the Democrats, and this is what I say all the time, and I've never changed it, is by holding people accountable. 
which we never do. We get people in office and we never hold them accountable. And so you don't get what you want because once you got them in office, you didn't go back to them and say, now, the reason I voted for you was so-and-so, so-and-so. Clyburn, Congressman Clyburn, when he supported Biden, he said, the reason I voted for you and supported you because I wanted a black woman on the Supreme Court. He got a black woman on the Supreme Court. He didn't let him forget it. And that's what we have to do when we elect these people to office. We have to go back to them and remind them of what they said and why we supported them. All right. Uh, that's a you raising the subject of uh the black woman on the Supreme Court, Katanji Brown Jackson. And that's a perfect uh, segue into uh, Claudia uh, Guy. So, the former president of Harvard. And so, hear me out on this one, uh, Del Marie. I do remember when uh, Congressman Clyburn said that. Uh, and I do remember when he made the case, uh, Clyburn, uh, for a black a woman to be vice president. And in each instance, Joe Biden delivered. Okay, I would say that's called black power. Just saying. Uh, a Kamala Harris, obviously the vice president, uh, and uh, Kataji Brown Jackson, the Supreme Court justice. The result has been a backlash. And you and I are old enough to have lived through many backlashes in our life. Uh, and so now there's this backlash a declaration that any time a Democrat like Joe Biden pledges to nominate a black woman uh, to any position of power, be it Supreme Court or a judicial uh, nominee, that is unfair racial discrimination. And automatically, that person is not the most highly qualified candidate for that position. And we saw this in the recent case with Harvard's president, Cloyd and Guy, where Bill Ackman, the hedge fund billionaire who's on the board, I think he's on the board of Harvard. He went to Harvard. He's enormously influential there. Immediately started hitting this point, Delmarie. He was mad at her for her uh, testimony uh, before the congressional hearing on anti-Semitism in Harvard. But he started hammering. This is what happens when you have an unqualified person who's only there by her because she's a black woman, take this position. And I'm like, wow, that is the, that's exactly what the right said about Kamala Harris. And it's like her popularity is even lower than Biden's, which is astounding to me, Delmarie. Why, why you would, <laughs> why you would hold anything against Kamala Harris? She's the vice president. She's not even at the top of the ticket that people hate on her. And it's because I believe They've been pollute. Their minds been polluted and brainwashed by this notion that because she got that position after Clyburn made that declaration, she's not qualified. I'd love to hear you riff and uh, on this general topic of the backlash that immediately comes after uh, a Katanji Brown Jackson or uh, Kamala Harris gets the position. Well, well, first of all, as you know, I've talked about this. Getting a black woman on the Supreme Court for me was a 30-year odyssey. I worked on it for 30 years. This didn't come because of Katanji. In fact, the person I wanted, I first wanted was Elaine Jones, 
who was from the NAACP Education and Defense Fund. And I met her when I was doing a story on Clarence Thomas. And after I met her, I was so blown away by her that immediately I started this odyssey. <laughs> I got to get a black woman on the Supreme Court. I got to get her on the Supreme Court. Of course, as she aged out, I realized it was not going to be her, but we still got to do it. And so I came up with other names over the years and I came, and I worked through other people. Uh, I worked through Roland Burrs when he became Senator. And uh, when Roland became Senator replacing Barack Obama, uh, one of the first, he was the only US Senator who on the floor of the Senate named two black women and Sonia Sotomayor as his three choices. As it turns out, Sonia Sotomayor got it. The next time I said to Roland, Roland, you can't say woman of color next time. You got to say black. We got to be specific because they're going to walk, they're going to walk around and pretend they don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> so the next time we came up with 10 black women's names, he stood on the Senate floor with a poster that we had made up of the 10 black women so, and, and nothing happened under a black president nothing happened because nobody respects black women. Even people married to black women claim to love black women, don't respect black women enough to fight for black women. Now they love that black woman who they're with. They may love their mama, <laughs> but they don't love all black women. <laughs> enough to fight for them. And so we didn't see, and as black women, we're so used to that. We're so used to fighting for ourselves. And that comes through slavery where we had to fight for ourselves because the man would be killed or lynched or whatever. Uh, and so you were there by yourself. And so down historically, we're so used to fighting for ourselves that we even defend it when we're ignored. I can't tell you how many black women have said to me, oh, Barack couldn't name a black woman to the Supreme Court. I'm like, what do you mean he couldn't name a black woman to the Supreme Court? Yes, he could have, but we're okay. We don't want him to fight that fight. And so, yes, it becomes an easy target because black women are less than. Now, the truth is, and everybody needs to know this who doesn't know it. Educated black women are probably the most educated of anybody in this population. You got black women with three, four, five degrees because we have bought into the lie that, oh, well, if you just get this one more degree, <laughs> <laughs> then you might get that job. You might get that promotion. And so we go out there and we get that yeah. one more degree. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to make the difference. You ain't going to see I'm black. You're going to see I'm degreed. <laughs> and so you're going to give me that job. So we have lied to ourselves. We're by ourselves. We've got jobs that don't pay as much as our counterparts, our white counterparts. We're heavily in debt with college tuition. And we've got all these burdens trying to live up to what white folks say we need to be and do in order to be 
respect it. And the fact is, we've already done all those things, and you still don't like us, and you still don't respect us, yeah. <laughs> and we still are disqualified or underqualified. Yeah. And so we've got to understand that that's just the way it is. Yeah. And so, I mean, I even me, I mean, do you think if I were white with my background that I wouldn't have a firm where I'd be turning business away? But we live with that yeah. and it's a reality and what are you going to do you just say okay that's the way it is and you keep fighting yeah. you fight the next fight because you cannot wallow in despair yeah. because things are unequal so the whole idea between behind affirmative action and diversity equity and inclusion was to try to level the playing field but white people don't want to level the playing field and, and and we're the only people who everything is taken from us. Nobody else has a history of everything being taken from you. First, your freedom was taken from you. Your schools, the drugstore, the, the, uh, the, <laughs> the bank, the grocery store. I mean, every time you look up, something is being taken from us and we're supposed to be okay with it. It's a wonder black folks aren't running around here crazy at the craziest people on earth, given you know, that, all that, that has been done to us. That distinction falls to MAGA, in my humble opinion. Uh, <laughs> we, we, could, we could outdo them. <laughs> so, uh, well, that was a great riff, man. Um, so, I'm going to go back to Ackman. It, it, so, again, ladies and gentlemen, this man is a hedge fund billionaire. Okay. Uh, and uh, he came from money to begin with. So it's like that old line. Uh, he, he was born on third base and thought he hit a triple. <laughs> I always thought was hilarious. Uh, and so he. And they said his wife plagiarized. Yeah, oh, yes. She, she did plagiarize. <laughs> so let's, let's put the plagiarism issue to the side, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, let's just put that to the side. Nobody anywhere ever cared about plagiarism. Right. Don't get me started about plagiarism and journalism <laughs> in Chicago, all right? It's only now a recent development that any newspaper will give any reporter a credit for anything that wasn't published in that paper. So I don't want to hear about – I learned about plagiarism firsthand when I worked for the reporter. <laughs> they would steal our stuff blind. <laughs> I don't want to hear about it. Don't want to hear about plagiarism, ladies and gentlemen, okay? <laughs> So, Ackman, yeah, and his wife, she plagiarized. I think it was something from Wikipedia. Like, <laughs> even, I mean, come on, even I don't take it from Wikipedia. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm not at Harvard. I'm not a big shot. So, all right. So this guy Ackman, what he has done, uh, he's mad at the president, and he wants to uh, flex his muscle, and so he's proclaiming. Delmarie, that he's standing up for this universal principle. And the universal principle that he is supposedly, that he claims he's standing up for, is the notion that of meritocracy. That you only get to where a position of prominence like president of Harvard, if you are the best, number one. Like, and I'm like figuring, like, how do you measure 
what are your standards? You know what I'm saying? It's like, what, what are like, what are the different qualifying standards that you think that like, I don't know, Larry Summers, who was a white man who was the president of Harvard has achieved that uh, Claudine Guy has not achieved. Or it's like, I sometimes think it's just a delusion. You follow what I'm saying? They're like they believe in something that doesn't exist. Meritocracy does not exist. Bill Ackman, but you're where you are, not because you're better than anybody else. It's because they're whiter than anybody else. And that, and that was meritocracy. The fact that they were white and that's all they needed to be. And so they're so used to being entitled that the idea that now they have to compete with people who don't look like them, what do you mean compete? So you could get into Harvard by early admission, which means you have money, you are rich. You, you don't have to wait for being, you, you know, you can just buy your way in. You don't know what they're gonna, what the, what the tuition's gonna be. You don't have to do anything. You just commit early and say, I wanna be admitted. Or you could go because of familial ties. And, and so you can get in. And, and that's okay. That's a for, both of those are forms of affirmative action that only an elite group of people can take advantage of, but that's okay. You can't take advantage of it. I can't take advantage of it, but a group of people can. And so they're, they've got their little circle that they can brag about among themselves in, in their little secret societies and of how they got in to Yale and Harvard and MIT and all the others. And so that's what they're upset about. And that's why, and that's what's resonating in terms of Trump. And I've said this from the very beginning. When Trump said, make America great again, it was about when black people, I mean, it was about when women and people of color knew their place. And the white man was the king of the world. He was the king of the business world. He was the king of his castle. He was king everywhere. And that's what this is about. And we saw that with the reversal of Roe versus Wade. What I said about women, when women barefoot and pregnant knew their place, when people of color were here to serve us, not compete with us, knew their place, that is what I represent. And so you have a group of people out here who want that. That's what they want. And that's what they're following. Make no, be, don't be confused about what they're following. That's what they're following. Do you think black America has been gaslit? And by that, like you taught, you started off by talking about a conversation you had with someone, a black man who said he's going to sit this one out. No, we, this is not about black people being gaslit. Believe me, it's about black men and and black women seeing the world differently. And it goes back to what I had said earlier about us being on our own. When I, I gave this speech, when I brought in Hillary Clinton, and one of the things I said was black women can't afford to set the house on fire because we the ones paying for the house. Is our things in the house? We would be crazy to set the house on fire. White women, when they didn't vote for Hillary in 2016, decided they were going to set the house on fire. As a result, they got the thing that they loved the most, Roe versus Wade, 
reversed because they couldn't see the future. All they saw was what was happening then. Black women don't have that luxury. We are responsible for everybody. We're responsible for our homes. We're responsible for our communities. We're responsible for everybody. And as a result of that, we don't have the luxury of staying home. We don't have the luxury of trying to make a point by sitting something out or setting it ablaze. We've got to do the right thing. And if you look at how black women vote, we do the right thing. We have single-handedly kept this democracy safe for the last seven or eight elections. We've kept this democracy safe. And so we don't have that luxury and we know we don't have that luxury because as bad as things are, they're gonna be worse for black women. Well, once again, uh, I think this election will come down to black women. Uh, you called it in Georgia with the Senate races. Remember that, those conversations we had? Yeah. Uh, and uh, more and more, I'm starting to think that November, it'll be a similar thing. Uh, unless, and I'll make a transition here, mm -hmm. uh, Donald John Trump is bounced from the ballot by the Supremes. Let's hope. Okay, uh, so I have two questions That's for you. That's where hope springs eternal, man. Oh, yeah, hope springs eternal, man. Uh, so I have, we've been talking about this case on this show uh, for a long time from two angles. Uh, one, should the Supremes bounce Donald Trump off the ballot on the grounds that he's clearly violating uh, the uh, section of the 14th Amendment that say ins insurrectionists should not allow to be run to run for president? Uh, and then there's the second question. Even if the answer to that first question is yes, they should bounce them, will they bounce them? So I'm going to give both of those questions to you. Start with the should they bounce them, and we'll follow up with will they bounce them. Go ahead, Delmarie. Well, they definitely should bounce him um, because he incited an insurrection. I mean, that's what he did. And there's no two ways about it. All you have to do is look at the look at what he said, look at what the people did, and look at the results. And so you know he was responsible. He was the common denominator through all of that. Um, if 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 he thinks he's somehow immune as president from any kind of prosecution, then he could commit murder as president and be immune. I mean, how is that possible? And so. This is this whole notion that he is above the law. Why? Because he was president of the United States. If anything, he's the whatever standards we have for the law, he should be rising above those standards, not below those standards. And he certainly shouldn't be rising above the average person who elected him. And that's what people forget is that these people we elect are sent there by us to represent us. They're not sent there to be better than us, to dictate to us. And, and that's what we keep losing in the process. The other thing is, will they, first of all, given this court, <laughs> I mean, it's very hard to tell. On the one hand, they're originalists, they claim. Uh, but then let's see if they are originalists on this. On the other hand, Donald Trump is doing what he did when he ran for president. 
when he ran in 2016, he laid the groundwork for if he lost, it was rigged. When he ran in 2020, he laid the groundwork for if he lost, it was rigged. And now he's laying the groundwork for if the Supreme Court rules against him, they're trying to be fairer than fair. Yeah, all right. By the way, uh, the backdrop of what's going on in the world while we're having this conversation is that there was a hearing in Washington. I don't know if you saw it, uh, Delmarie. I read about it right before we went on the mic, uh, where Donald Trump's lawyers were advancing the argument for an appellate court that Donald Trump is uh, immunized from any prosecution for any wrongdoing he does when he's the president. Uh, and so, therefore, uh, you cannot prosecute him uh, for... Uh, you cannot hold him accountable and prosecute him for what uh, his insurrection. Uh, you can't because he's a president. Uh, and so these judges were throwing all these, you know how those judges do it. When, when a lawyer says something as an absolute, they start throwing, well, what, a, what about this? What about this? <laughs> well, I got to love lawyers after some level. Uh, and and this, you know, they, no matter what they said, what if he machine gun all these people? Well, nope, he can't be. You know what I mean? They have to hold to that principle. You know what I'm saying? It, it's absolutely absurd uh, point of view. But they are advancing that argument. And I've been thinking about this, uh, and I don't believe, I've said this all along, there's any way the Supreme Court uh, will bounce Trump off the ballot, even though it's pretty obvious that he should be bounced off the ballot. Um, I believe that anybody who's being honest about it would admit uh, that he should be bounced from the ballot. And only if you say he shouldn't, it's just because you don't want him bounced. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, it's so weird, Delmarie. I say this all the time, but it just reminds me. It just... I know this is a tangent within a tangent, but it just reminds me of so many conversations I had back in the 90s with black people about, did OJ do the murder? And it'd be like, it's a racist system and the cop is racist. I go, I know that. It's a racist system. I know the cop is racist, but do you think OJ did the murder? You couldn't, you know what I mean? At that past, you couldn't, you couldn't yeah, he did it. You know what I'm saying? Chris Rock has that bit where he, I don't know if you've seen it, where he goes, when what black people make sure white people aren't around, they go, yeah, he did it. Uh, and that's how, like, MAGA is about Trump. You can't get them to admit that he's wrong. He did something wrong. Nope, they're just not going to admit it. I personally believe that Clarence Thomas, uh, who shouldn't be allowed to participate in this one, Delmarie, will argue, will write that what Donald Trump did and what the January, more to the point, what the January 6th insurrectionists did was not insurrection. That, I believe well, he will... We're saying that. Yeah, I believe he will put that in me. Alito may sign along with him on that one. I don't know who <laughs> leads who, Alito or Thomas, one or the other, I don't know. <laughs> um, but I just have a hard time seeing. It's just like such a dramatic blow. Do you follow what I'm... It's like... The, the mini equivalent is when the Illinois Supreme could not bring themselves to kick Rahm Emanuel off the ballot in 2011, even though he was clearly violating the residency requirement. Oh, no, we're not going to be the ones to do this. Your thoughts about everything I just said. <laughs> no, I I mean, I, I just think it's going to be uh, interesting. And I agree with you. I don't really believe the Supreme Court's going to uh, make a decision. I believe they're going to say that the voters have the right to do it uh, because that's the easy way out. And uh, the only question 
will probably be what the breakdown of the vote is going to be for us to see who really um, is sticking up for democracy and who isn't and who's going along to get along and is uh, doing the right thing in terms of loyalty uh, for being on the Supreme Court anyway. So I just think that's what we're gonna see more so than anything. Uh, and that will be, that will tell us all we need to know is the breakdown of the vote. So yeah, the, if, if your prediction is true or what you're suggesting, it'll be a six to three vote for Donald Trump. In other words, the six Republicans or the six justices who are nominated by Republicans will line up for Donald Trump and they may have various opinions that they write. Uh, they, and some may be more extreme than another in their defense of Donald Trump. Uh, I predict Clarence Thomas will be uh, and Sam Alito will be the most extreme. Uh, and then the three Democrats. Uh, I'm not even sure about that, Marie, actually, when I say it, you know what I mean? I'm like, I don't even know if they got the guts to bounce Donald Trump off the ballot. Uh, it was Democratic Supreme Court in Illinois. They couldn't pull the trigger on Rahm Emanuel. So, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's well, they were too close. They, you know, they, we had relationships there. <laughs> that's yes. I won't name those relationships, but we had relationships. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the objectivity that we claim to have wasn't evident in that case. <laughs> By the way, to my point about OJ, do you ha did you have any conversations back in the 90s where you said, yeah, I know that, but did he do it? Did you ever have any conversations oh, like I, that? I gave speeches. Uh, uh, people were calling me to come and give speeches. I, I actually don't believe he did it uh, because I, I, don't believe, I, don't believe, I don't believe he's that smart. Uh, you would be saying that he got away with murder, and there is nothing about OJ Simpson that shows me he's that smart. Wow. We should do a whole show on it. Then. Uh, <laughs> And I could, because uh, I, as I said, I gave speeches on that. Wow. I got a friend <laughs> who remained anonymous. Uh, I love her dearly. Uh, she now has moved to the brother did it, like OJ's brother did it. <laughs> well, I heard all of that. I heard the brother. I heard the son. I heard oh, all of that. It could have been the son, not the brother. I apologize. I can't remember. I just laughed. I can't do anything to avoid saying OJ. Uh, all right. Uh Let's shift gears completely. And you said something to me uh, I, that I just was smiling when you said it to me, just in passing before the show began. But folks may not, uh, Bedell Marie Cobb has a connection uh, to Red Fox, mm -hmm. and who is one of the funniest human beings, in my humble opinion, of all time. A uh, very funny comedian and the, the star of uh, San Francisco. Uh, so, and uh, you mentioned that you met Shecky Green. Through Red Fox, and I just was smiling. I'm like, I didn't like Shecky Green. I hadn't had a. I don't think Shecky Green's name's ever been mentioned on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but we might as well. You might as well take the just take a moment to explain. Okay, Shecky Green, ladies and gentlemen, was a comedian, the quintessential Las Vegas comedian, made a fortune with his Vegas comedy acts. Uh, never really made it in mainstream television, uh, but he made a good living in, in Vegas. And by the way, he's Chicago born and raised, went to Sen High School, graduated from Sen. Great football player at Sen High School, folks should know. Anyway, uh, Shecky Green died. He's almost 100, I want to say. He was in his 90s. He was up there just recently. Uh, and you mentioned in passing you have a Shecky Green connection. So go ahead. The floor <laughs> is yours, Delmarie. So, uh, as you said, I worked for um, on the Sanford and Son show. 
And uh, with Red Fox, I was a production assistant. And when I was on my way, so before that, so I have a relationship with uh, Sanford and Son, Red Fox, through my father. And uh, so when I decided to go to um, Los Angeles, I was living in uh, the Bel Air Sands Hotel, and I was trying to figure out where was I going to live in Los Angeles. And I and so this is before the show or during the taping of the show. We're in the green room, Red Fox's green room. And, you know, Red Fox is from Chicago as well. And so you had the two Chicagoans, Red Fox, Shecky Green, and actually a third Chicagoan, one of the stepbrothers, the dance team, Prince. Uh, he was in the, in the room as well. So all of us Chicagoans were in the room. And Shecky heard me to say, you know, he asked me where I lived. I told him I didn't have a place. I was staying in the hotel. And he said, oh, let me tell you where you should move. And, and he, he suggested that I move to Oakwood Gardens Apartments at the time in San Fernando Valley. And that's where I happened to move based on Shecky Green's recommendation that I moved to Oakwood Gardens Apartments in Woodland Hills. And it turned out, it worked out fine because since I was working at NBC, uh, both of them in the Valley, one's in Burbank, one in Woodland Hills, 16 miles apart. It was a good, it was a good choice, but I did that based on that conversation. So you were, you were the quintessential sort of like you were the, the observer in the room with these two giants of comedy. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, ah, I was, when you told me that I was so jealous, I was envious. I, was like, <laughs> I wish I were in that room. I wouldn't have said a word. I, mean, I would just be <laughs> watching observing absorbing uh i mean was there anything about red fox and shecky green when they were just in the private that struck you or anything about red fox you know when he was alone in the in the privacy of his green room that struck you that was different about well you know they were always joking so you know that was the the interesting thing of course is that they were always on Mm -hmm. these guys at that level they were always on. There was no such thing as being off. And uh, and so they would just go back and forth. The banter between all of them, uh, you know, was, was nonstop. Who was going to top the other? But they weren't doing it in a way that, um, you know, that was um, uh, aggressive or anything. It was actually them being laid back, enjoying each other. Almost like when you watch um, uh, Byron Allen. And Byron Allen and I were friends, too. Uh, his mother and I started out together at NBC. And um, so I know him very well as also at that time. And when you see his show and all the comedians are sitting around talking and he throws out something, a topic, and then they they do this whole, uh, as you say, riff <laughs> on it. Well, that was what it was like being in the room with uh, Red Fox and all the other stars when I would see him. Did, did they acknowledge the humor in each other or was it more like they just said, oh, that's funny, and then moved on? Because a lot of times I'm with comics, they don't laugh at each other's jokes. They'll just say, oh, that was funny. <laughs> you know, no, it was just, laugh. yeah, it was just casual. It was never like, oh, man, that was great. <laughs> no, he would, they would probably do that talking to us before they did that talking to each other because, you know, I remember having said something, and I, I mean, I can't tell you what it was, what, what it is now, because I don't remember. But, you know, you're just having a conversation. And they go, oh, I like that. I'm going to steal it. <laughs> you know? I say that to Del Marie all the time. Oh, <laughs> I, I say that to a lot of my guests. Oh, I like that. I'm going to steal it. 
But here's the thing. If people say something off the record in a conversation, all bets are off. Okay. Go back to the plagiarism thing. It's not plagiarism if they're too chicken to say it on the mic. Okay. I'll say it. So I don't think it's plagiarism if you do that. I saw this uh, interview. I forget who it was with. Uh, the man was talking about Red Fox. Oh, God. Who was it? It'll come to me after the show. Uh, and um, he was talking about how years ago, he, the guy who was telling the story, let's say his name is Billy. Billy needed money and he went to Red Fox uh, and he, I think it was to buy a house, but don't quote me, uh, Delmarie, I can't remember the details. And was like, I need this, but good, I'm, I'm a little hard up right now, but money will come in, I'll be able to pay you back. And he said that, and he did an imitation, the guy did an imitation of Red Fox, which I did a great imitation. But the point was Red Fox said, just called the secretary over, wrote the check gave the man the check and he said i don't want to hear about it i just this is i'm giving this to you do take care of your business and when you're in a position where you can help you help somebody else and i was like what can you say adele marie red fox was the man you know what i mean you know there were a lot of guys like that i mean there was um uh, a watch that red fox had that elvis presley had given him and i remember him saying uh, that all he did was admire it. He said to Elvis Presley, hey man, I really like your watch. And he took it right off his hand, arm and handed it to him, say, it's yours now. I mean, there were a certain group of guys who were stars, bigger, larger than life. You know, this Frank Sinatra's, the, the, the uh, Sammy Davis Juniors and, and those guys, that's who they were. And so, you know, they had the money. I mean, when, when I worked for on Sanford and Son, one of the things, and I'm sure you heard about this at the time, is he made NBC hire black vendors. There were no black vendors when, when Red Fox started doing Sanford and Son. And so he made them hire a black caterer for his show so that on Friday night when they did the taping, there was a black person who had that contract. He made them hire um, um, black, now I've gone blank on her name, his sister-in-law uh, on Sanford and Son, who had been a vaudeville actor, actress. And he, he brought so many, Slappy White, all of those guys, he brought them back into the fold. They have been vaudeville actors. And he said, no, we're going to give them parts. We're going to write them into the script. When we would do Sanford and Son on Friday night, Freddie Prinze, uh, Chico and the Man was the other show that was being taped at the same time. All the actors from all the other shows would come over to our uh, uh, taping so they could get the food by the black caterer. <laughs> 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 Instead of from the NBC commissary. Uh, it's like all coming together in this show right now because uh, we talked, I was talking about that hedge fund guy, Ackman, who uh was decrying um the fact that clothing uh, guy was the president and allegedly there were some standards of meritocracy that her appointment had violated uh, uh, uh lawanda page <laughs> okay yes uh got lawanda page but um, <laughs> uh so uh i remember when harold washington was elected mayor he said we're gonna some of these uh, municipal bond lawyers we're gonna bring in some black people and Red Fox, we're going to bring in some black people to to be vendors. These positions, it's not like you're, it's not like, how do I put this? Pretty much, they're, 
I mean, I couldn't do them. I could not be a municipal bond lawyer. Okay, I admit that. I could not be a caterer. I could not be a vendor, me personally. But, like, if that's your thing, pretty much anybody could, if that, you'll be able to do that job. You're only held back because you're black. And so when it, Red Fox comes in a position of power, he goes, I want black people hired. Boom, they hire black people. The Ackmans of the world go, they only got the job because they're black. And they never look at it like, you only got the job because you're white. Exactly. You follow what I'm saying, Delmarie? Exactly. Like, that was you, my point earlier. Yeah. <laughs> Harold's like, get me some black municipal bond lawyers. I don't care. This is not rocket science. You know what I'm saying? And it's writing a bond deal. Um, <laughs> all right. And we're going to close with this one. I'm going to tease uh, Delmarie with this one. This is priceless. All right. She knows what's coming. So. Yeah, the last week I was uh, helping Monroe. Uh, Anderson moved some boxes and stuff, uh, and I'm at his house, and um, there's a box of old clippings, which I don't know why he kept it, but he did. I shouldn't talk. You should see all the old clippings in my room. And um, it was an Indigo uh, newspaper uh, issue from 1996, ladies and gentlemen. So, of course, rather than move a box, I'm already loafing on the job. Uh, <laughs> I'm letting Monroe move the boxes, and I'm reading the indigo. Like, oh, let me see what. <laughs> and lo and behold, what do I see? Uh, the info—that's the name of the column—by Del Marie Cobb. And Del Marie, this picture may have been from the '70s. I don't know. Uh, it's a picture taken a while back, uh, and it is just telling it like it is column about Roland Burris and the Democrats and how Democrats take black people for granted, uh, which may be at the heart of why uh, your associate said he's not even going to vote for Joe Biden. He's going to sit this one out. Uh, but you're making some of the same arguments then. You've been fighting this fight for a long time, Delmarie Cobb. Uh, you're talking about how the Democrats foolishly, foolishly um, ended up uh, choosing Glenn Pichard over uh, Roland Burris in the 1996 race for governor. And I was just smiling. Some things, cha some things change and some things don't change. Uh, I sent this to you. And uh, here's, here's the, the pullout quote. Classic Delmarie Cobb. Since Mayor Washington's death, the black community has fumbled away every opportunity to show any real political clout. This quote now is, let me do the math, ladies and gentlemen. Hold on. Bill Ackman will get mad at me say I'm not qualified to be a podcaster. 27 years old. Uh, you still you still believe that that quote, that pullout quote? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've watched it happen so many times uh, that we've had the opportunity to do things and um, and we just haven't done it and and for the life of me, <laughs> I have no idea why. Because for a while there, uh, people were actually scared of the black vote in the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. And we just gave it away. And, and again, one of the ways we gave it away was based on what I said earlier about the guy I was talking to. We decided not to vote. Um, you know, I often talk about from the time um, Daley got in office in 1989 and the time he left office, um, 1.3 million people voted in that election in 1989. Um, in 
when he stepped down, it was, I think the vote was something like 500,000 people wow. voted total, total. <laughs> and so that means half a million people, over half a million people uh, disenfranchised themselves mm -hmm. by not voting. And so that's giving it away. That's just giving it away. Wow. Let's, uh, let's just leave on that point. Yeah, that speaks volumes, man, that that drop off. And I think now we're like happy if 35% of the people in the city vote. Well, it was a good turnout, 35%. Uh, but I, yeah, I'm not sure. I guess you could argue that not voting is a choice. I'm not sure it's a rational choice, but it is a, a choice uh, that people make. And then, of course, the consequences emerge from that choice, uh, Delmarie. Well, uh, I always say that voting is my activism. I'm with you on that one. I mean, I'm I'm gonna vote. Um, mom up there, okay. <laughs> That's what's one thing she taught me back in 19. What was it? 74. My first election. <laughs> uh, all right, Del Marie. Thank you very much for taking time to come on my humble little podcast. And pretty much whatever I ask you, do so. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Del Marie Cobb. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. That's a great Delmarie Cobb. Also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. And I think Delmarie will agree with me when I say, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love. And remember, if you missed any previous Ben Jarofsky shows, Benny J bonus interviews or columns from Ben Jarofsky, just head to chicagoreader.com. You can find all of that and a whole lot more. If you want to follow Ben on Instagram, that's easy. At Benny J Show. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow The Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.